did you always expect to, you know, become some type of influencer or someone who really Oh my god, no. Motivates. I hate, I hate <laughs> that word. I never wanted to be one. I've never tried to be one. I, I, <laughs> Hey, I'm Rudy Dogum, and this is Wholesome Crypto. Here I speak with crypto experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs to find out what personally led them to the path of cryptocurrency. Today I speak with Ben Prentice, a producer of What Bitcoin Did, one of the top 10 crypto podcasts in the world. He also co-stars in the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast, where he talks Bitcoin with his guests and is the co-author of WTF Happened in 1971.com. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, man. It's good to see you, Rudy. It's good to see you, too. I know we've uh, chatted up a little bit over dinner a few weekends ago, and it's good to see you here in Boston. So, you know, it's been a pretty wild ride so far in the crypto industry, especially now what's going on with the new amendment. And yeah, the- the infrastructure bill, which mm-hmm. by by the time this episode drops, we will probably already have been decided. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's crazy stuff. It's exciting to see cryptocurrency being talked about in the government, even though they are trying to shut it down. The beauty of crypto is that it's decentralized. So even if there are rules against it, it can't be shut down. You know, I believe it's a threat to scare the industry into working with the government so they don't get replaced. Yeah, well, even if it does pass, like in in some onerous way, it, it it seems to me that they have no idea what they're talking about, and they're being so ambiguous in the language because they have no idea what they're talking about, and because some of the stuff will be so unenforceable and detrimental to innovation in America, I think it will be fought very hard. You know, even if it's just at the lawyer and the judge level, or if they're appealing it or whatever, and none of this stuff goes into effect until like twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four or something like that. So it's. It's it's just a whole lot of just frustration right now. That's all. Yeah, it's it's a growing pains of crypto. It's just we're gonna figure it out eventually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, before we get deep into the cryptocurrency topics, you know, I want to get to know more about what you were doing before Bitcoin. What, what did you? What was life for like for Ben pre Bitcoin? Oh man, um, I worked in restaurant industry for a very long time, but. I, I've always been, I've always been like interested in lots of different things. Uh, you know, I was uh, into uh, 3D graphics and media production, video, audio. Um, I was in a rock band for 13 years, actually. What did you um, play? I play the electric guitar. I mean, I, I know a few other instruments too, but I, I play a lot of lead, like classical rock, heavy wow. metal, stuff like that. Um, uh, a lot of grunge, alternative rock. Um, did you sing? at all oh yeah yeah mostly like kind of more backups but um i I can carry a tune here here from from point a to point b (laughs) how many years did you do that uh yeah i was so i mean i've played music for over 20 years but uh, i was in i was i I was in an actual active like um band playing shows and making albums for over 13 years oh wow yeah and then um i also uh eventually got into Bitcoin. Um, but so I, I just, I've always had a lot of different, you know, interests and stuff. And I, I learned a few languages along the way. Nice. Yeah. What, wait, what languages do you know? Or did you try to learn? Well, I speak Spanish and Portuguese, like pretty okay. fluently. I mean, yeah, especially in Boston here, we have a huge community of Portuguese. 
yep. people. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's probably a good language to know around here too. Spanish is always a clutch language to have. For sure. Uh, sweet. And then, you know, I guess, were you always an innovative person? Were you always trying to find the latest tech and like jump on the bandwagon and really learn about it? Or was Bitcoin the one that just hit you really hard and you went went rolling with it? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I have always been into technology, like for as long as I can remember. Um, I my dad, you know, when growing up, had like five or six computers in the house, which is unheard of. I mean, yeah. we're talking about the you know late eighties, early nineties, and stuff. And there was like one room in my house where there was like at least three computers in that one room. And they were, you know, these are old CRT monitors, right? So it's not, not, so like the, the monitors themselves took up like a fair amount of space in the room. So you walk in this one room and I used to joke to my friends when they come over, I was like, yeah, and this is mission control over here. Cause you had all these computers everywhere. But like, I remember even like we were 10, 11 years old, my dad had computers in like each one of our rooms. So we had like, it was DOS at that point. It was DOS, right? And we were like, playing like uh text-based games like ukrel and um quarter inch floppies yes 100 <laughs> and and at some point i remember too like when the internet was starting to come out um he eventually like ran ethernet cable like through our house so we'd even have like internet in our room you had ethernet up. back then oh yeah wow. yeah we he <laughs> running cat five fit cable like he even like drilled some holes through the ceiling and ran some up and down the stairs and stuff but would I do computers on all the time? Um, no, no. You would turn on the computer just to do okay. something, and then you would turn it off, right? Like that was <laughs> Thing, things weren't running twenty four seven back then. No, definitely not. Um, and you have to wait for the computer. So like you turn the computer on, go like make a cup of coffee, and come, you know, come back, that kind of thing. Um, but you know what I remember like really, really well is like being like 10 11 years old and there's that have you seen that clip of like i think it's good morning america when they're like what is the internet oh, yeah. anyway and the at sign or whatever it's like i remember being yeah i remember being 10 and 11 years old and being like i would have had such a better answer than those people who are like literally like on tv adults and i could have given them a much better answer that was they they called the internet internet like a, a computer billboard or something and it was you know obviously this this network that it, it, at the time, you could not move a lot of data around. It was very limited by bandwidth. And I could see even from like 10 to 11 to 12 years old, I could see the band. You know, I went from like a 14.4 modem to like a 56K modem or something. And I, I saw that progression. I was like, well, extrapolating out here, you're going to be able to send like HD video all around the globe at like near zero cost, like in the near future. And like I was trying to like figure out you know, what types of things that would enable. Um, and, and that's what always amazes me the most now is that now we have so much, you know, data available and data speeds, storage space. It feels like it's almost infinite. But that also worries me is, are people and developers taking into consideration creating the most efficient application? Just because we have all this capability, are we still trying to create our apps more efficiently? I download the Facebook Messenger app on my phone. It's like a couple hundred megabytes and there's other gaming apps are like over gigabyte file sizes. I'm like, do we even need this stuff? You know, is, yeah. it, is it even taking into consideration of downsizing as much as we can? But 
we are in the too much information age. Um, and, and I grew up in the information age. So like after, you know, after I kind of started going to college and stuff like that, I remember I had a, a PDA, right? So like the, there was like original, like the Palm Pilots were like a, a monochrome screen, like, like those old Casio watches, right? It was yeah. like, you know, there was, it wasn't even backlit. Yeah, it was like that. It was like it wasn't even backlit. And then like eventually I saw the evolution of those devices and I had something that was like a precursor to what an iPhone was. It was like a Sony Clie PDA. So it was like really the yes, yeah, so it was like I one of the I remember those. Yeah, it was like one of the last evolutions of PDAs before like uh smartphones came along and just wiped them out. But I remember carrying this thing around time, um, always looking for Wi-Fi because you know it didn't have a cell chip in it. So and I like walking around school and like I was a weird person for having a computer in my pocket. I remember like being at work, whatever, and like maybe reading something at work. People were like, why do you have a computer? Put your little computer away, right? And and it's really funny that you saw like the, the, the now now that we're all in the smartphone generation. And, and as you said, the, the too much information age, we're all trying to come to grips with that. But I, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing for society, Rudy. I think, you know, we, we see this like this fake news era, right? I think that's really just a realization where we already were and we're starting to see um, the narrative come apart that these centralized, you know, news organizations or whatever had had any kind of um, authority in the first place. And but but in in trying to like, you know, we are we are like children um, in this Internet age and this too much information age and we're trying to sort through it now. And that's um, I, I, you know, I, I maybe I push back on your kind of like, are we creating too much data? Because mm-hmm. I think. In the long run, that's deflationary. I think, you know, we're not really going to have a storage problem, but the sorting problem is a real problem and connecting people and, and figuring out what's what's good versus bad information. That's still something that we're still figuring out. And hopefully we will figure it out. But yeah, no, I, don't, I don't. Yeah, it's not something in the near future. I don't think it's a large enough problem yet for us, especially with all the cloud computing. It just no one even realizes that the giant mega data centers that Google, Amazon, and Microsoft all have and how much information they're hosting for most of the most of the globe. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I, you know, I think hard drive space is cheap. I, I think maybe we're maybe we're doing too much replication. I think cloud computing is going to kind of go away in the, in the future. Yeah. I think be, because technology is getting cheaper all the time, um, and because we're losing our privacy to these services and being able to replicate the same functionality at home is going to be just as cheap. Um, I think we'll stop giving it away um, to all these organizations that want all our data and are trying to encourage all that. So, no, but I, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. And then, um, yeah, and then you know, as this industries keep changing and you're starting to see a different trend and pattern growing, then you know, you first hear about Bitcoin, you know, what was your first reaction? Like, is this, just, is this the end all be all? Is this going to just some, some weird cypherpunk punk news that you're listening to and just kind of brushed it off? How yeah. is it for you? More the latter. Um, <laughs> I was reading at the time, several, probably in between these two periods I was talking about, um, when I was reading Slashdot very heavily. So Slashdot, News for Nerds, it was like the hub of like, you know, computer developers and stuff yeah. in the in the 90s. Um, and, the, you know, the article, I think the first article on Slashdot came around 2011 or 2012, I don't remember. Um, but I definitely remember it coming around. I remember reading, vaguely reading discussions of, like, people that are much smarter than I am um, trying to understand why this thing is important. And you have to understand that, like, even the Internet's understanding and even the geeks' understanding of what Bitcoin was then, it was 
absolutely nowhere near what our understanding of it is today. And our, I think our understanding of it today is still somewhat flawed and still somewhat like, you know, naive. Um, but you know, obviously we've made a lot of progress, but these, I've got to give these guys credit. They understood there was something really important there. Um, I think I'd also say that like, I, I couldn't grok the technicals of what a, the problem it solved was and B how like elegantly it solved that problem. Um, so I think my overall take on Bitcoin was like, that looks interesting. It's some kind of internet money thing, but it will probably never work. I mean, you've got to understand reading Slashdot, it was like yeah. every day you're inundated with like, oh, this is like brand new battery technology is going to like solve all of our battery storage. But like every single day was something like that. So like, I was like, yeah, it's a really cool idea, but it'll probably never work. Yeah. But I think a lot of people take like multiple touches to Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. to like really come to it. So like, you know, again, in 2013 or 2014, it was like, oh, people are actually using this thing to buy drugs on the internet. And like, I almost went and bought some drugs on the internet with it. But I thought, I thought it was anonymous. Like I thought Bitcoin, the whole purpose of it was like, it's specifically an anonymous, like, you know, kind of like what Monero uh, claims itself to be today. Mm -hmm. So when I went to like Mt. Gox to buy Bitcoin, uh, it was like, okay, so give us your, your license, your, your, your bank account. And I was like, this yeah, yeah, basically KYC. You know, I was like, this isn't anonymous. So I, I, I basically forgot about it again until, you know, 2017 and number grow up um, brought me back. So wow. that reminds me how you're saying how, um, you know, people were just kind of talking about whatever and might be putting their own comments and opinions on Bitcoin if it's going to work or not. That reminds me of today of Hacker News, how a lot of crypto posts are usually talked down on by very educated people who are really, really good in their industry, really understand how technology works. And I always see their comments of going back and forth that it that just won't work. If, you know, people don't understand how much data it's using up or, you know, how much uh, energy it's consuming or if just straight out politically and human beings might not be able to work together to make it work. So it's really interesting seeing different types of opinions on that and, you know, watching it grow and develop. I, I think it's fascinating that you point that out because I would 100% agree. I think there are very smart people that reject Bitcoin today. And you know, I, I joke that number go up brought me back to Bitcoin. But number go up brought me back to Bitcoin because I saw that the price of this thing kept going up. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, why is the price of what's supposed to be a money changing at all? Like, don't Aren't monies like a stable thing against which we measure other things, right? That sometimes change in price, right? Yep. And that didn't make any sense to me. So I had to like go down a rabbit, a personal rabbit hole of my own just to say, what the heck is Bitcoin and why is it here? And and for the same reason, I think those people that reject Bitcoin um, today even, um, it, you know, I, I, I had to figure out was that Bitcoin is a monetary technology. And it's something that, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of talked to you, to you and side mm -hmm. channels about, but it's a monetary technology first and foremost, and that the technology that makes it work surrounds that and some people that come to bitcoin come to it just for the technology that surrounds it. like oh they solved the uh you know the oh i almost just said the surgeon the um <laughs> the the general's problem the byzantine general's problem they solved that that's so cool or like you know oh they're working on bulletproofs and cryptography some people come to it just for that but yeah. like i came to it to understand as a monetary technology and i've spent most of my time doing research on why it's important as a monetary technology and that that requires real you know investment of time and is that what um led you to write about wtf happened in 1971 100 um it was doing research on 
because it, it, when you try to understand what money is, you have to like at some point take a look at what the system of money we have today is. You know, and like, my background here is all these fiat currencies. You you have to look. You know, what is the history of you know how did they come to be and how do they function? One of the things you must eventually come to in research of the the fiat monetary system is 1971 when Richard obviously Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard and. Uh, I, I thought, you know, to myself that if Bitcoin is a better money because it's it's, you know, it has a hard cap to 21 million supply mm -hmm. that when we took ourselves off the gold standard, then things probably would have gone worse because that was the last kind of reins on the system. And if you go to like um, the Bretton Woods page or the Nixon shock page, you'll see some of the first few charts that we put up on the website. And that kind of like that didn't start the genesis of the website, but it, we started kind of collecting things like that and said, like, look, here's why Bitcoin's important. Here's some of the data. And we would be like arguing with people on the internet and stuff. And we eventually like collected enough of these things that we were like, man, it's annoying to like constantly go through our phones. And we just like my, my buddy. So, you know, you mentioned that I was the author of it, but uh, I, I made it with my buddy, a heavily armed clown. Uh, we have our own podcast, nice. uh, Bitcoin Echo Chamber. So we co-founded the website. And it was his idea to kind of like stick it up there and put the question at the top and and not explain any of it. And and uh, if your viewers aren't familiar, it's it's just a bunch of data that shows how objectively some things have declined. And there's there's an inflection point in the data in 1971 where things are like society is getting worse, at least in these particular areas. And our thesis, obviously, is that, you know, because inflation um, and, and, and other things, too, that I, I think there's a lot of second order effects that kind of trickle down from that things that you wouldn't even consider. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And I definitely yeah, visited your site and it's a ton of good infographics of, you know, all correlating to a single time in history, like where, what's going on with our money? Why is it changing in value so dramatically? And, you know, it's something I wasn't fully aware of until I saw your website and kind of shows you that money is changing quickly especially in 1971 and then 2008 in the mortgage crisis when Bitcoin was released. And even now it's still changing with your, I mean, with your background. You can see the Venezuelan currency. It's just no longer valuable. Um, and it's it's something that you know Bitcoin is definitely proving to show that currency is going to change in a way where it's a globally accessible option. And for me, it's kind of what really you know struck to me. It's like, wow, the entire world can share one currency. The entire world can control it together, but, you know, we're still facing the struggle of power. Who, who wants to be able to control it? Who wants to be able to handle it? And I think the biggest struggle right now with humanity is understanding that people can have power, the power of the people. We don't need some specific entity telling us what the value is anymore. Yeah, well, I think if you look back at the history of money, um, it, it is a, it's a really interesting story because, you know, obviously we tried a bunch of different monetary technologies. Uh, a bunch of them not, and it didn't end up working out so well for a lot of civilizations and saw the downfall of those civilizations. And, and we we converged as a globe on, on gold. And even gold had a lot of shortcomings. And that's a lot of the thesis of 1971 is some of the prehistory before 1971. You know, 1971 was just a precipitous event. Um, and what I'm getting at here is that gold has a number of drawbacks, especially when you compare it versus something like Bitcoin. Um, not one of them being verifiability. Um, so like if you go back, you know, we've been using coinage for quite some time mm -hmm. and it was a way of, of unifying, um, codifying money. So they had like equal units, like, you know, this is a piece of eight, or this is a, you know, this is a, a 
denarius or you know all these different things where the society can now had better economic calculation but it introduced as you were kind of pointing out that there was somebody who had to organize that in the first place and that that um, as satoshi says in the white paper history is full of breaches of trust of the central authority um, so by removing the central authority um, we're, we're in a new paradigm of money and uh the implications of that are are far-reaching and probably beyond the scope of this podcast. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of good uh, information out there on that. And again, much much to, to discuss on that topic. But we can continue to the, uh, you know, you wrote, you and your co-author wrote, you know, WTF happened in 1971. When did you first, you know, start working on what Bitcoin did? It's one of the top 10 podcasts about cryptocurrencies in the world. So it's uh, you definitely had some transition period and some history period going into that. So if you want to explain a little bit more about your road into there. Yeah, well, I like to joke um, that I, I so I, you know, I was working in the restaurant industry and I wanted to get out of that. Yeah. I, I like to joke that I memed my way into this job <laughs> because, you know, we, you know, I, I was we kind of created WTF happened in 1971 by accident. And um, it's, it's, it's a pretty prevalent meme in the, in the, in the, you know, the Bitcoin world now. And I, it was, it ended up getting big enough that eventually Peter found out about it and invited us on the podcast, Peter McCormick, what Bitcoin did. And he ended up getting us on even twice. So I, you know, I, I had a relationship with him and eventually I reached out to him and I said, Hey, I got a bunch of background in media production. Do you need any work done for me? And, he eventually offered me a job working for him and producing for him. So that was um, in the beginning of this year. And I started actually working for him full time in March. And uh, I love it. I think Peter's hilarious. He's a he's a good guy. He's trying to help educate people. He, he stands for um, really important topics. Um, he's yeah. he's a bit of a nut sometimes. Um, he gets a lot <laughs> of hard time. But but uh, it's you know, I, I really enjoy it. I get to research and talk about Bitcoin and work on Bitcoin kind of all day. Did you always expect to, you know, become some type of influencer or someone who really? Oh my God, no! Motivates? I hate, I hate <laughs> that word. I never wanted to be one. I've never tried to be one. I, I, no, I, I had to stop you there because listen, Go for I, it. I, I remember very specifically when I started getting, you know, for I started on Reddit and realized like Reddit is it's not as great as Twitter for for really understanding Bitcoin and getting into the conversation, but. That was my goal. My goal was to be part of the conversation, at least if, if even if it was just as a student, um, to, to, to be at least close enough to the people that that were smart enough that I could learn about Bitcoin. Um, that I that and th and then that progressed into now I want to be able to have you know be able to bounce ideas off other people, um, and and that and that progressed into like really like now I want to yeah. be part of this conversation of what Bitcoin is, where it's going, and why it's important and I've, I've never i've never like wanted any kind of fame in fact like i think my follower number is getting kind of high now i've thought about already like putting like you know some people like turd or put it protected like oh. i don't want you know i don't want hundreds of thousands of people following me that's that's too much <laughs> it's not a that's choice not though sometimes no. is it no if, if you want to be active but... it's just it happens yeah but does that make sense like it's no like, I... I hate that I, the idea of being an influencer you just want to express your ideas and opinions but you don't want people necessarily taking you so literally maybe on every word or you know i just want to have a conversation just that's, want... 
I just want to talk. And people who get the most follows get the conversations. I mean, it's so hard for somebody to have a conversation maybe online on Twitter with Elon Musk, but maybe Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk, they'd reply to each other on Twitter. So sometimes right. it is the number of followers gives you the right or the pathway to speaking with other individuals. But it's very true. But like, you know, in order to play that game, you really do have to play that game. You got to play that it's, game. It's like, I, you know, I, I spent, you know, 10, probably a year researching all this stuff. And I made this like really long inflation thread after like a lot of work, a lot of conversations I had and it. It gained a lot of attention. I, I think it got up to, you know, like 1.7 K likes and 300,000 impressions or something like that. It's like pretty good. That's really like, good. Yeah. I had like 4,000 followers at the time. So it's not bad. And, and then the other day I put a, um, a meme up and the meme was the, the two guys are at the booths and one booth has a bunch yeah. of guys at it and the other one doesn't. And the one where the doesn't like is like 30 K Bitcoin. And then the, the one with the booth with all the people at it, it's the 60 K Bitcoin. And that post got as many likes as my like super long, like intellectual threat. <laughs> so it's like, I, I, you know, if I wanted to get the number higher, I could probably just keep doing memes and stuff like that. But I really, I don't care. I mean, memeing that. is a job on its own. I've seen tons of crypto projects put job postings for meme maker, meme generator or meme Lord. It's just, that's how we get people's attention nowadays is just by memeing. And I mean, I, f I fall for it too. I mean, sometimes I get sucked into the memes and start laughing at them and try to create my own, but it's a, uh, yeah, people are kind of losing out on the intellectual part of the conversation where it's beyond just trading prices and more about what cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is doing for the population in general. Well, I think memes are very important because it, and it kind of goes back to the conversation we we're having earlier about like too much information, mm -hmm. right? That, that, the, the reason a meme is so powerful is because it's concise. It can get a very complex idea sometimes um, across to a very large audience very quickly and sometimes even has a, a, a hint of entertainment at the same time. Yeah. A meme can just be a sentence, right? But we think of a meme as like, oh, it has to be like this graphic with like a caption. And it's like, that's not. A meme is something that's mimetic that, that kind of programs your mind and is viral and um, I think that's useful in the, the too much information age that we can get an idea across in that way. It's just it, it's I think part of it also is that our culture um, is so high time preference, which is that Austrian economics term that means that like you you favor the short term versus like thinking long term yeah. that that we 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 are like a instant gratification generation and like we're not willing to read a 30 page paper but if you have a funny graphic with a guy on it and a stick figure then <laughs> i'm all, you know i'm all ears for that right yeah. like i don't so i think there's a lot of kind of things that are that are competing there but yeah and um, yeah that's true but it's something to it's definitely i think overall better if it's used wisely but yeah it's something that you know the internet's always crazy about so hopefully people try to use it more efficiently than just for the likes. Um, but yeah, I wanted to also know more about, you know, since you were a musician, you still play some music. Was there any part of you or any type of a uh, time where you wanted to correlate your cryptocurrency knowledge with your music? Would, would you ever consider somehow, you know, putting NFTs on the Bitcoin network or Ethereum network? Or have you had any uh, ideas of you know, bringing music onto the chain? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I might, you know, at some point for the, for the meme of it, like make a, you know, make a Bitcoin kind of <laughs> song or something like that. But NFTs for me, I, I don't see, um, a lot of use for them. I, I think of NFTs like a, a digital autograph and I don't see it as anything more than that. And for what it's worth, you know, autographs and collectibles is a, 
it, you know, it's millions of dollars, a billion dollar. I don't know what the number is. It's, it's a huge industry. And a lot of people are into that. I've never been into it myself. Um, I, I don't really see the value myself, um, except for a way to set, like sell something to people. And I've never really enjoyed selling my art. Um, and you know, if, if you want to take donations, Bitcoin already makes that very easy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, to, to me, I don't see the appeal of NFTs because I think they're just a digital autograph. And I think there's a lot of hype around this this concept of people saying, oh, well, it's going to do like royalties and DRM. And I, I, I haven't seen that yet. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm very excited for the part where it's beyond just the price for a, a painting or a picture or some type of artwork. Not to devalue art, I think, you know, we obviously have art that's in history that's worth it's pretty much priceless like the mona lisa it's just something we all appreciate and have and treasure and i think that aspect is a whole different aspect than what nfts can bring to us where as you're saying it might just be a digital signature but a signature is everything especially now with any legal requirements legal documents if i sign any uh, paperwork, it's all about a signature. So being able to bring the physical wor world into the digital world and have some type of signature, I think is still crucial for our development. And I think it doesn't have to be about the price or what type of monetary value it brings. It's more that proof of signage. Well, I mean, digital signatures are very important. I'm not trying to belittle digital signatures at all. Mm -hmm. I just, I think there's so much hype and 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 money chasing this NFT craze right now that you know if if somebody is thinking about it from any kind of economic sense i would caution them to kind of take a step back and like let some of this this foam and fervor die down and, and really look at what's actually happening because uh, you know digital signatures we use them all the time we use yeah. them on our our cell phones our you know our all end-to-end -end encryption every everything uses digital signatures bitcoin uses digital signatures everything uses digital signatures mm -hmm. that, that's that's important i just i i think this the the nft scene people think that it's way more than it really is and and for me that's an echo of the ico boom it's like oh well now we can you know i just made a bitcoin but it's like faster or whatever it has more yeah. tps and more trends and we saw that whole hype die down and i'm seeing a lot of echoes of that and a lot of malinvestment which is another economic austin economics term where people are like people are putting their money in anything because they can't put it in dollars right and and that kind of spills over into these things. So I, I I'm not saying that they're completely useless to everybody. I just personally have no use mm -hmm. for them currently, and I think there's way more hype than they they deserve at this point. Well, that makes that makes sense. And yeah, it's totally right on on that. Where people are definitely finding places or any place to try to put their money in just to make some type of profit, and, and usually that doesn't work out too well. I know I've fell into some poor ICO projects back in 2017 that I truly regret and probably could have just kept it into Bitcoin and would have been guilty. Much. Yep. <laughs> and <laughs> anyone that says they're not guilty, I feel like, yeah, you got to have something because it's just too hard not to try. But, you know, it's all about good marketing nowadays. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, uh, going back onto what Bitcoin did, uh, who was the most wholesome guest you had on the show? Like some guests you're just like, wow, this guy is, you know, oof some societal good well i would like to say nick carter but i don't know if you follow the nick carter escapades apparently he's destroying the planet so it couldn't be nick carter <laughs> uh, so it'd have to be alex gladstein mm -hmm. uh he's probably the golden boy of, of bitcoin right now he you know if you're not familiar with uh, alex gladstein um he works for the human rights at organization Human rights association. Why, why, why am I free? 
HRF, Human Rights Foundation. Okay. He's the chief. Um, oh my God, I'm just blanking on him right today. But he's amazing. He's uh, he is an advocate for you know um, human rights around the world. He he talks about how Bitcoin helps people escape from authoritarian governments. He's written some amazing articles. He wrote a, a great article on the petrodollar system. Um, he just came out with another one recently, um, Palestine. Um, and I, I think that the the wholesome um, mission of this guy to help people around the world, the people that need this uh, this technology the most, you know, um, one of my favorite um, things that he'll do is he'll he'll find somebody that's like, you know, how we were talking about people that um, kind of crap on Bitcoin or whatever yeah. without understanding why this technology is important there. They live in a, a place of privilege. So he, he wrote an article called um, Check Your Financial Privilege. So like if one of these guys comes out like, I can't believe all these crypto bros are like into this thing that's like just destroying the planet or whatever. He goes like, you need to check your financial privilege. People in Nigeria are using this like, you know, people in the Venezuela are using this to survive. P dissidents in uh, other countries are using this to escape, you know, authoritarian regimes. Um, people are using it in Hong Kong to to help protest against the, the government. Um, you know, so it's, I think that is one of the most compelling stories in, in all of uh, the Bitcoin world. And that's a beautiful thing because I feel like as an American, it's, it's pretty hard for me to make sense to use Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just transactions still cost money, even you know, how, no matter how little or how much it is. I still have PayPal. I still have Venmo. I still have Cash App. Zelle, have all these different ways of doing financial transactions within America and within uh, Americans that are free. No fees, no wait time. It's pretty instant. And it's hard to convince myself and convince the American population that you know, crypto is important. And when you look at uh, the biggest selling point for me is like, look at other countries that need this to escape their authoritarian government or need this to, you know, store their own value for their hard earned work. And yeah. Well, I, listen, I 100% agree with you, but that's that's my point is that Bitcoin is not a payments technology. It's a monetary technology. And that just like you say, in the Western world, we live in a state where we have plenty of payments technologies, right? And they work really well in the Western world for privileged people like you and me. What we do not need is payments technology. Um, but I think what's actually preventing Bitcoin from being used more widely in places in the Western world is tax regulation. There's onerous reporting tax burden and um, and and just like really it's it's not so much paying the tax. It's it's like every single time you spend like, you know, with mm -hmm. with lightning, for example, you can play a lightning video game and earn one sat at a time and you might do that 100 times a minute. And technically, you have to report and, and collect all the information of every single time when you would collect each one of these things, the cost basis of it. And like when you sold one of them by like, you know, paying some yeah. kind of, you know, video game or any kind of thing that that's really what's preventing it for, um, I think, in my opinion, because, yes, while you're saying that, you know, PayPal and Venmo are, are, are zero fees, right? Uh, Lightning is getting very close to being uh, like a zero fear, very, you know, almost negligible fees. You know, one Satoshi is like 0.00025 cents or something like mm -hmm. that. Right. So it's it, the the cost is not the problem. But but Lightning as a technology, as being an open technology um, is is going to make, you know, like, for example, I don't know if you've seen the stuff with like um, Lightning authorization where they're using like LNURL. Um, to do authorization so that like I can now sign into a web page by opening a lightning wallet and like the web page that I'm trying to sign into will send a challenge to my um, to my node or my wallet 
and my wallet will give a cryptographic response. So then I can now log in without a username, without a password. And uh, I could do this now to a bunch of different websites and it could each, each one can get a completely different username and password, so to speak, yeah. public and private um, response from me. And, and that's, it's, it's a much better system. You don't have to worry about passwords at all. These things can't track you across multiple things. I mean, think about like Google auth and all these things. So I, I think the technology is already like going to be like exponentially better than what we use for quote unquote payments technology today. But it's really the regulation that's getting in the way of it, going back to even the infrastructure bill and all this crap that's happening right now. Yeah, it's it's tough to manage all the micro transactions that are happening within cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. It's just there's too many going on at, at too fast where it's hard to keep track. But you know, that's, a, that's where the other side of it comes in when we start developing better machine learning technologies that can read all those transactions and calculate the taxes for us without having to do it ourselves or even double check it. Yeah, but across like, you know, a bunch of different wallets and a bunch of different devices. And, and then you have this machine learning algorithm that's collecting all your data and that yeah. becomes another honeypot. That's worse. What we need is a de minimis exemption from the regulations, right? Like at the very least, like exempt transactions under $1,000 per day, right? So that like, or, or maybe even $500 per day. So that like, you know, I can pay for a cup of coffee on Lightning and not have to like, you know, worry about trying to, you know, using a machine yep. learning algorithm to, to collect my tax information every single day. And, but the thing is that exactly that, like you're saying, using lightning or using some type of payment processor, that is the future. Eventually one day as once Bitcoin grows to a point where it's uh, a common household money that everyone has, or has some part of, or people are getting paid in Bitcoin. I think that's a real goal in life is once we start getting paid in Bitcoin, that's when things start turning around and people would look at it more of a payment platform, payment use rather than just an investment or a monetary hold. Yeah. And and the volatility makes that a little bit hard for people. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, it's, it's one of these things that I, th I think it's putting the cart before the horse to worry about, you know, payments now. Uh, again, Bitcoin has to become a money before you can worry about that stuff. And that yeah. process of monetization is is a process that requires volatility because it has to get bigger and it's it getting bigger is part of that volatility so it's it's just a it's just a process that we've never seen happen in real time before so we don't we don't know what it looks like because we don't have any precedent for that gotcha and yeah it makes sense hopefully one day we'll see it sooner than later but that's well, what we're all working for you, you mentioned like the amount of people that you know use bitcoin in the united states for example like that number has been basically doubling for every like you know, year or two. Mm -hmm. So like in, in, in two to three years, like half of the U S population will at least have Bitcoin. Right. And, and then a few more years after that, like it, it, it gets really hard to like be a politician that is like, has anti you know Bitcoin uh, stance, I think. So. Yeah. Especially when our generation starts going into more political positions. For sure. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, anyone listening, hopefully you uh, can ask your boss or your employer that you can get paid in Bitcoin, that'll get their gears going, hopefully adopt it. Well, yeah. And you can use like, you can use Bitwage or whatever. So you can like send your direct deposit to yeah. Bitwage and they'll send you, they'll even send you some of it in fiat and some of it in Bitcoin too, or, um, you know, stack DCA, whatever. There's, and there's, there's options for everybody. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to like pressure your employer. <laughs> Again, pressure. I think, it's, I think it's, it's like, it's like, it's, it's like the kind of the merchant adoption thing we were doing in 2017. We're like, oh, look, like, you know, Microsoft's accepting Bitcoin now. Like Bitcoin's going to the moon. It's like, 
no, like it's, that's not how it goes. Like it has to become money first. So, you know, use it yourself for the way that works for you, which is going to be different for somebody who uses it in Nigeria or El Salvador or whatever. Right. Yeah. How would you say cryptocurrency changed your life then? Is it a total shift? Did you ever, you know, what would you be doing now if it wasn't for you know, learning about Bitcoin? Well, I think the biggest thing that it did was give me hope um, because I always, you know, kind of looked at the world and, and tried to ask myself, like, why, despite all of this technology, because like I said, I've always been a technology. I think technology is amazing. Um, why, despite all this technological progress, and even like what seemed like social progress, you know, if you just like look in this really narrow view of like, oh, we used to have slaves like not that long ago and now we don't. So that's like also better. Right. So like even these two kind of narrow prongs of society are marching forward in some way. Why does it seem like things are getting worse for like average Americans? Why does it seem like, you know, even in the span of my lifetime, uh, I feel like I worked hard. I've had like decent kind of jobs and like it's hard to even save money at all, right? It's hard to buy a house now. It's like, why are these things happening? And obviously, uh, I think Bitcoin is a sound money. I think it eliminates inflation. Uh, I think it, it reorganizes society because money is a coordinating function of society mm -hmm. through the price system. And I, I think that that's ultimately given me hope that the, a lot of this stagnation and kind of downtrend has been a problem of the money itself. And and Bitcoin fixes this and Bitcoin is very hard to kill. So I'm very hopeful about the future. And it definitely goes back to what you were saying before about too much data. It's you know, people are being fed a lot of information very quickly. And most of the time it's negative information. Sometimes it's positive, but no matter what it is, it's just we're being fed a lot and it's a lot to learn faster and faster. It's kind of like, you know, we, we might be in a you know great society where we kind of have all of our needs met, but what we're learning about is so much more that we're missing. And that kind of brings you like, you know, find a way to bring us back to reality, back to being grounded and saying, you know, we have it pretty good and we need to you know, share that and bring it to different parts of the world and create a more accessible way to attain this type of life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think realigning human cooperation mm -hmm. globally is, is, is definitely the number one goal. And I, I think, I, like, I think you're already seeing that, like, you know, we are talking about, we're being privileged in, in being in the Western um, developed kind of places. The, uh, in developing countries, uh, look at Bitcoin volumes, peer-to-peer -peer trading volumes, Argentina, Nigeria, uh, Turkey, Iran, uh, Venezuela, all these places, it, it's just skyrocketing, right? These people are desperate for a store of value. And, the, you know, like I said, later, it has to filter into actually becoming a money there and becoming mm -hmm. a, you know, a unit of account, a medium exchange. But that's, that's it's just a process. And uh, I, I do... I have a lot of hope for those places because I think inflation has ravaged specifically Africa. Africa has been one of the, you know, and, and I think uh, that's a, like a really long history of money kind of story, but um, yep. I, I do have hope for them. And Cardano is really pushing their agenda into Africa. So I'm curious to see how that goes. And what's the Cardano agenda? They're bringing themselves, the Cardano coin, they're bringing them, they're trying to bring that into Africa and try to have that as the coin to use in that country. And why do you think that would be better than Bitcoin? I don't know if it would be better or worse. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious to see how it's going to go. I'm always curious on every project. I don't, I wait to see who proves themselves to be better. I think Charles is a scammer. <laughs> did you see him on Lex Friedman? I did not. Go watch that episode. I'm going to watch. I love Lex. I, I, think, I think he's a scammer. I think Charles, I don't trust him at all. I, oh, I, don't, I don't think he makes good arguments, so. I got to see it. <laughs> Maybe I'll have him on the show one day. Uh, let's see. And um, But yeah, from there, are there any new exciting projects that you're looking on, excited about, reading about? 
Um, but right now, Bolt 12 on Lightning is amazing. It basically, you know, the idea that like, you know, in 2017, oh, here's a donation Bitcoin address. So you can just yeah. like generate a single address. But it's like it tends up being really bad for privacy, <clears throat> but it's really useful. You don't need like a whole BTC pay server just to use the thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think Bolt 12 does that not only for Lightning, but also in a private way. So you basically have a QR code. It's static. You don't need a web server at all. And when your wallet sees the QR code, um, your wallet looks up the node using the Lightning Network messaging system. So it doesn't use a, the web page at all has nothing to do with this. It goes and talks to the node using the onion routed um, network, finds out the, like you can get an invoice from the node or you can get this thing to pay you. Like this could be used in an ATM where you withdraw oh, wow. sats from the ATM by scanning the QR code. And all of this, hides the uh, node IDs from each other. So it's private. Um, and it's, it's, it's just amazing for being able to, you know, being donated very small amounts, which is not, Bitcoin is not good for today on chain. So I actually think that's really fascinating. So it's called Bolt 12. You can go to Bolt 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's called Bolt 12. You can go to Bolt12.org. Um, and it's, it's specifically the offers part of it. But Bolt 12 has a whole bunch of other stuff in there too, uh, like Merkleized trees. So you can like, prove something about a payment without revealing other details about yourself and uh, it's just pretty amazing technology yeah that's a new uh thing i've been seeing a lot in the crypto industry is the privacy aspect that people yeah. are realizing like you said in the beginning that bitcoin is not necessarily an anonymous coin neither is ethereum or any public chain uh but it's always great to see that there's different layers being added on or different protocols that have been worked on to try to make it into a more anonymous coin, but still keeping the, you know, the flavor of crypto that you love so much. The privacy battle is going to be large. Um, and I, I mean that in two ways, like the, I think there's going to be a big battle to get privacy on the base layer in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, I personally tend to think that privacy is coming on the second layers and it isn't something we need on the base layer. Um, but I also mean that the privacy battle in 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 the regulatory regime, I think they're not going to they don't like this privacy technology They're You know, I'm telling you about this Bolt 12 thing. You've been into, you know, Bitcoin and crypto for how long you've never heard of it. Like these people yeah. have no idea what we're talking about. They don't even know <laughs> what a second layer is, let alone privacy technology. So once they start to figure that stuff out, they're going to be like, wait a second, you're saying they have anonymous transactions and it's, you know, it's going to sound worse. Another fight battle as well but um you know it's 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 really hard you know at the bottom of wtf happened in 1971 we have a quote from um hayek that says i don't think we'll ever have a good money again that is until we take the thing out of the hands of governments and we can't take it out violently we have to instead introduce some sly roundabout in some sly roundabout way something that they can't stop and i i, I think having anonymous payments is good uh, I think, you know, yes, criminals can use it, but criminals can use clothes and cars and, and guns. And we don't ban those things either because yeah. these tools are really important for society. And and ultimately, most people are driven to crime because, um, you know, their situations are bad anyway. So but but this privacy fight is, is going to be huge. And uh, um, I, I hope the technology is good enough. Uh, I, I don't I don't like fighting, but. Um, you know, I, I, at the same time, it's it, if things are like completely unenforceable, they're really hard to regulate anyway. And sometimes, you know, it's like BitTorrent, right? Like BitTorrent was like, you know, the whole BitTorrent story yeah. where it was like Napster and then LimeWire and all these things. And BitTorrent came along and they were kind of like, eh, I guess there's nothing we can do. 
you know? So I, I kind of like hope for that type of scenario. Yeah. It's a sad thing. They always try to make an example of some person that, you know, uploaded some movie or like, um, Ross where they, he was jailed yeah. for creating the Silk Road. It's just trying to make examples out of people that doesn't necessarily help and just brings more attention to try to, that gives people more intention to work with that software, work with that type of technology. 100%. Sweet. Uh, last thing I want to ask you to end it in a wholesome way, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what made you smile the most recently? What made me smile the most recently? Yeah, what gave you a grin to grin, an ear to ear? Bitcoin's pumping today. That's what <laughs> made me smile, man. I don't know if that's very wholesome or not, but no, uh, it's I, awesome. you know, I, I think Bitcoin um, getting bigger is is great for the world. So it, in a sense, that's uh, what makes me happy. But I'm also uh, a greedy person, I guess. <laughs> happy to see number go up. We all like to see some <laughs> increase in value. So it's always fun. Well, thank you for being on the show, Ben. I appreciate your time. And for everyone else, please visit his WTF happened in 1971 and what Bitcoin did. Thank you for listening. See ya.